As we do every Sunday, we will read together, and let's read aloud, beginning at Acts chapter 3, verse 11. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and knowledge and understanding of your word today. Pour out your spirit, Lord, on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all may be seated. This lame, crippled man that had sat by that gate called Beautiful for much of his life, 40 years he was crippled, from birth, seeking whatever alms that he could receive from the people entering into the temple. This lame, crippled man that was healed by the power of God through the apostles Peter and John represents for us a number of things that are typical of our own lives before and after we come to Jesus Christ. Certainly, he was an illustration of the lost sinner since he, first of all, was born lame, and all are born sinners. He could not walk, and no sinner can walk so as to please God. He was outside of the temple, and sinners are always outside of God's temple, the church. He was begging for sinners or beggars, always searching for some sort of satisfaction, even if it be meager. But the first picture that we see after this miraculous healing is is the power of God in the heart of man to change the conditions of life as man has only known them to that which exalts the precious name of Christ with every step taken and with every breath that is breathed. You see, with the intensity of Peter and John's eyes burning into the very heart of this lame man, and when they say to him, you look at us, They lifting him up by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the crippled feet and the ankles receiving strength. He did what he never had done with strength, or I'm sorry, he did what he had never done with strength that he never had. 
to walk and to leap and to praise the Lord for a life that he never lived. And that as well is a reflection of each and every one of us who have come to Jesus Christ from that same lame and crippled condition. That we do now what we had never done with strength that we had never had to walk and to leap and to praise the Lord for a life that we have never lived until now. And in having received these blessings, the the man shows us how every believer in Jesus Christ should be and how every believer in Jesus Christ should act. Entering the temple in fellowship with God's servants and praising God for His mighty deeds. That is what I hope you came into this place to do today. That you came in here with that desire, with that, that fervency in your heart to give praise and honor to God for the great and the wonderful things that He's done. In Psalm 122, verse 1, the psalmist said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. That is how we are to enter into this place each and every time we gather to praise the Lord. Glad because of the great things that He has done for us. Earlier on in Psalm chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, uh, uh, David says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. I I think of this statement that he says in verse 1, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I I wonder how many of us come in here today, into this place, whether it's just today or, or whenever, but do we come in with that desire to praise God with our whole heart? Sometimes I wonder, and I think about myself as well, do I ever come in here just half-heartedly, you know, just because I have to, or just because, you know, I go, well, it's Sunday, or, or it's Saturday night, or it's Wednesday, or whatever, but I come in half-heartedly, what is that going to do? <laughs> What's going to happen? I mean, I spend a few minutes, a couple of hours, maybe or an hour and a half or an hour, and then I go, accomplishing what? If I don't come in here with that desire to praise God for the great things that He's done, waiting to, and with expectancy to hear what God wants me to hear and what God wants me to know from His Word so that I can go out and do those things that will honor Him. We cannot come into this place half-heartedly and expect any great thing to happen. Although God can work on the half-hearted heart and awaken us to the very fact that we need to give all of who we are to the Lord. But that lame man had never gone into the temple because he had been lame. That, That lame man had never gone in to praise God. He probably blamed God for his condition. But there in one instant, in, in, in a moment, he's doing things that he had never been able to do before. Standing, which, which of course he didn't even have to practice. God gave him the gift to stand. God gave him the gift to walk and the gift to leap. And what does he do? He goes in walking, leaping and praising God. And what marvelous works he had to tell. For what had just happened to him, and his walk was new, it was different, attracting many now to be in wonder and amazement over what had taken place. Why? Because they knew that this was a miracle. They knew that this man couldn't have faked what he had done for 40 years. This is how he lived. This is how he was born. But now they see him walking, leaping and praising God, and they're running, scurrying together, finding, trying to find out what has taken place. 
And so the excitement was far from over from that day of Pentecost when things were happening within the temple and the people were wondering, what's going on here? What is this that is taking place? Notice in verse 11, now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. Things evidently hadn't settled down since the events of the day of Pentecost. Really just a few days earlier, wasn't it? And this became another opportunity for Peter to present Jesus Christ and to offer forgiveness to the nation of Israel. Because twice now, God has done things to get people's attention. The great moving of the Holy Spirit upon the 120. The 120 beginning to praise God in languages they had never known. And the people began to ask the question, what is going on here? And now this lame man walking, leaping, praising God. Twice God has done things to get people's attention. And both times, Peter takes the opportunity to tell his fellow Jews about Jesus Christ. But we don't want to miss out on something really beautiful here. We don't want to miss out on a beautiful picture that is given to us in verse 11. It is this picture of this healed man holding on to Peter and to John. He was holding on to them. And I have to tell you, he wasn't holding on to Peter and John because the healing had expired. You know, it was only for a moment. He walked, leaped, praised God, and then all of a sudden, oh my God, the batteries are, are dead. He wasn't doing that. He wasn't holding on to them because, because all of a sudden there was no more healing. He had the healing. Why was he holding on to Peter and John? He was holding on to new friends. He, how many friends could you have when you sit at the gate beautiful begging for alms? But now he has friends. He has beautiful friends. He has great friends, new friends. And that not only friends, but brothers, brothers in Christ. But, but even more importantly, the picture, holding on to them. He was holding on to them as a child would hold on to their father. He was holding on to the very vessels that God used to bring this healing to his body and healing to his heart. He was holding on to them as, 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 as spiritual fathers who he didn't want to let go. What he received was something that, he was, that was going to benefit him for the rest of his life. And that holding on is something that we need to do ourselves when we've come to Jesus Christ and realize, you know, what happened to us the day that we went from darkness into light, when we went from death into life, was, was, was something that we don't ever want to let go. And Christians, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you know that there are periods of time in our life that we sometimes just ease away, ease away a little bit, little bit by, you know, little by little by little, and we find ourselves where we don't really need to be, away from the God that we love. And when He brings that, that realization back into our hearts through conviction of the Holy Spirit, we run back to do what? To hold on. And thank the Lord that He gives us those opportunities to do that. But let's do that and hold on and let's never let go. Why? Because He is the source of our life. And hold on to the things. I mean, this is one reason why to the church of Ephesus, Jesus in, in, in Revelation chapter 2 brings this condemnation to a church that was busy, to a church that was active, to a church that was acting like an organization. All the wheels and all the, you know, all the, all the gears were, were oil. But he says, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. 
And he says, return to your first love. Return to it. And hold on to it. And he's holding on. And what a precious sight that had to have been. What a wonderful example of gratitude and thanksgiving. Being grateful for the vessels that the Lord puts in our lives to heal us. You know, we don't look in the ministry, we don't look for, for those, those, you know, accolades. We don't look for the applause, you know. But well, you know what? But, it, but it, it, it blesses our heart when people will say, you know, God used you for something in my life. And it, it, just, it, it just goes to the depths of our heart to think, wow, what a joy. Remember when Jesus said, heal the ten lepers. And the, the, the ten lepers, I mean, uh, one, only one of those ten lepers came back to Jesus to thank Him. Came back to show Him gratitude. What happened to the other nine? I can't believe that they didn't have gratitude. They just didn't show gratitude. And that's a big difference. And here He's holding on to Peter and to John. Grateful for what God did in using them. And, verse, uh, and, and it brings one more verse to mind. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Uh, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. The day of Jesus Christ is coming. And so because of that, let's exhort one another. Let's build up one another. Let's, let's encourage one another. Let's, let's consider one another to good works. That's part of what we are called to do in the church. That's why I rejoice when I see you every week, day in, day out, whatever it is, whenever it is that we gather together. I rejoice in you. And to be honest with you, listen, I look beyond those empty chairs. There are a bunch of them around, right? But I look beyond that because I don't look at those things. I look at you because you're here and you're called to encourage. You're called to come in through those doors together in fellowship to worship God with one voice and with one heart. That encourages me. Keep doing that. And don't, 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 don't ever get into the habit of, of saying, well, I don't need to go to church today. I don't need to do that. You know what? We need fellowship. We need to put our voices together to be encouraged that God loves each and every one of us and that we love Him. But let's not let go of that. Let's hold on to that. I spent a lot of time on that. I wasn't going to do that. But I, I just felt we need, to, we need to be encouraged. Jesus is coming soon. The world is, is going you know where in a handbasket, as they say. This world is falling apart, but not the church. Not the church. Let the church be the church and the people rejoice. That is what we are called to do. With all of this going on, getting back now, let's get, get back quick. The people then, with all that was going on, the people began to assemble in Solomon's porch, which was a covered portico that ran the entire length of the eastern portion of the temple's outer court. It was a great outdoor location for a large gathering of people, and Peter wasted no time in taking advantage of the situation. Look at verse 12 now. So when Peter saw it, he responded. To the people. Second thing, I should say the second time he's done that. When the people began to gather and ask, what is going on here? Are these people drunk? In Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, he responded. 
Same thing here. When Peter saw what was happening, the people were coming, Peter responded to the people and he said, as he said before, he gave them a name, men of Israel. Why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? You're running over here and looking at us and, 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 and thinking that we're something uh, and, and we have some power in and of ourselves to have raised this man from his lame condition into the condition in which he's in, as if we have the power. You see, Peter knew that he was nothing more than a fisherman from the standpoint of who he was, how he was dressed, what he looked like. He knew that he was nothing more than a fisherman. Certainly in his heart he knew he was more than a fisherman. Because now he was a a believer in Jesus Christ. Now he was a, a vessel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the great power that was displayed that day was displayed by Jesus Himself. Please understand that when people get healed, they get healed because of the power of Jesus Christ. And the great power that was displayed that day was displayed by Jesus Himself, and it was another proof that Jesus was alive. And this is what He's trying to get across to the Jewish people in the temple. It was also to prove that the Holy Spirit had indeed come with promised blessings. He had to let them know, listen, as the Scripture said, this is what's going to happen when the Spirit comes. And so he was proving that the Holy Spirit had indeed come with promised blessings. Isaiah 35 verse 6 is, is, the, is the Scripture that to a certain extent was fulfilled that day. The lame shall leap like a deer, it says. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Now this particular verse in Isaiah promised the Jewish people that Israel would enjoy such miracles when their Messiah was received. But now, Peter wanted to deal with them through this miracle concerning their salvation. Because you see, any miracle can arouse interest. Any miracle can arouse people's interest and want to see what is going on. Who did this? What happened? How did it happen? But the people weren't saved yet. They weren't saved. They were just amazed at the miracle. And so he immediately and firmly denied that the healing was due to his power or godliness. Now this is an important point for today, because remember that today there are faith healers who never claim to heal in their own power, but yet they still give the impression that healing takes place because they're so spiritual, because they're so close to God, as it were. I mean, that's, that's how, it, it, how it is. Oh, it's not me, you know, but, but it looks like it is you. It looks by the things that you do on stage or it looks by the, the, the way you might wave your coat at people, you know, or breathe on them and people fall over, which I just, you know, it just amazes me what people will, you know, the mind will do. Folks, that is saying, well, I, I'm not healing, but I'm part of it. And Peter says, I'm not a part. I'm just a vessel. I'm speaking in the authority in the name of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who healed this man. And don't look at us as if, you know, don't marvel because of what you think is coming out of us. So Peter said to the crowd, why do you marvel at this? Listen, if Jesus healed all sorts of people when he was on this earth, why do you think it's strange that he still heals from heaven? Why should we even think that it is strange that Jesus can still heal today? 
It isn't strange. If He healed then, He can heal now. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was on this earth, if, if, if a man comes to Him and says, My daughter who is miles away from here needs your healing, healing touch, come with me. Jesus said, Just speak the word. And when the man goes home, what happened? Jesus had healed the man's daughter. Do you understand that Jesus can heal wherever He is and where, and where He is in heaven? What a, best, what, what a great place to heal from. Because we're trusting in the Lord's power to heal. It is not any one person here, even though people have been given the gift of healing, certainly. It is one of the gifts that we find in, in 1 Corinthians. We, we find it uh, mentioned. So Peter, what does he do? The people have not been saved. Things are happening. They are seeing things. But what does Peter know? Peter knows what Paul will write much later when he says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so Peter preaches Jesus. Verse 13 says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just. I want you to notice how Jewish this sermon is. Those statements that are made. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers. His servant Jesus. The Holy One and the just. You deny the Holy One and the just and ask for a murder to be granted to you. Remember that. Who was that? Barabbas. And kill the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. In other words, we have seen the risen Christ. We have seen the risen Christ. And His name, through faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. See, do you want to know who healed this man? The name and faith in His name. His name. What name was mentioned before? Well, in verse 13, servant Jesus. But in Acts chapter 2, what did He call Him? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He has a name. His name, through faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through Him has given Him the perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that the Christ would suffer, He, God, has thus fulfilled. Now, two things are of great importance in this passage. I'm reading a, a larger section here. We're going to finish this chapter, uh, mainly because a lot of things can be tied into what Peter preached in the first sermon in chapter 2. But two things are of great importance in this passage. First of all, the language that Peter uses is clearly Jewish. The language that he uses is clearly Jewish. The names mentioned are the titles of the Jewish Messiah. Servant, the Holy One, the Just, the Prince of Life. You know, you start thinking about the things that were stated in Isaiah chapter 9. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so the names are, are, are mentioned are titles. The terms that would be used in the next section that we'll read in just a moment describe the promised kingdom of God on earth 
when he mentions times of refreshing, when he mentions the times of restoration, terms that the Jewish person and the Jewish mindset would know and understand. Secondly, Peter made clear or makes clear which God he's speaking of. It is important that we make clear which God we are speaking about. He calls him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Folks, we need to be clear about the God that we serve and the God that we speak about. Why? Because so many people with strange and different ideas about God may, may think that we're talking about one and the same God with them. You know, when they have all kinds of weird and different ideas about their God. There are new age gods today. They say, well, I pray to God. Well, which, you know, I always ask, well, which God are you praying to? As the kids learned this week, I'm sure, or this weekend in their, in their conference about truth, <clears throat> that the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, is different, really different than the God of, of Mormonism. Different than the God of Jehovah's Witnesses, different than the God of uh, many other cults and all. When people just thought, want to talk about God and, and don't specify, you know, we need to, we need to know. We, our God is one God, and Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. We need to clarify these things. So Peter clarifies what God we're talking about, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have to know the difference, and we should know otherwise. What others, what others may say. So what makes this sermon great then? What makes this sermon great is that it is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus from beginning to end. It isn't about Peter. It isn't about Peter's anything. It isn't about any strength or power that Peter has. It is about Jesus Christ. It is about the Lord. That is how our conversation should be when we talk to people about the Lord. It is about Jesus we need to always bring them back to Jesus. We need to always mention Jesus. Why? Because what, what good is it to mention anything else? The power is in Christ. But then, what Peter does is he places the guilt of Christ's de- death directly where it needed to be. He does it again. And may I say, he does it with great boldness. He tells them, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Now that's a, that's a bold statement to make. And, and what he's really implying here more than anything else is he's saying, you know that if we had, as a nation had received Jesus as Messiah, then we would truly see His power. Then He would come in all of His glory. But you see, God already knew that wasn't going to happen. And so they were going to kill Him. But as we learned in chapter 2, it was part of God's plan. And through it all, it wasn't just the Jews that did this. Jews and Gentiles were all guilty. Do we know that? Yes, we do. Why? Because the Romans would not have crucified Jesus without the Jews, and the Jews could not have crucified Jesus without the Romans. Jew and Gentile crucified Jesus. Bring it down to our day and time, before we came to know Christ, were we not a part of that as well? Our sins put Jesus on the cross. Now some believe that the boldness of Peter to proclaim this was an even greater miracle than the healing of the lame man. And in a way it was. Why? Because Peter was one who was running scared during the time of Jesus' uh, trials and, and all. And he was hiding and he was denying Jesus. He denied him three times. But now he's not denying anything. He's out there making, it a, making the bold statement. You delivered him up. You denied him in the presence of Pilate. 
But is he downright accusing them? Or is he saying something else? Because it brings us back, you see. It brings us back uh, to mind the, the reason for Peter's sermon here. Look at verses 15 and 16. You kill the prince of life, but then notice the next phrase, whom God raised from the dead. Here's the purpose. Yes, he died, but God raised him from the dead, of which we are witnesses. We've seen him. Folks, when, when people were using the, ex, the, the excuse to, to exterminate the Jews during the Holocaust, and they were saying they were Christ killers, folks, that, that, was, that, that was totally bogus. Because Peter himself, a Jew, said to them, Yes, you delivered him up, but God raised him from the dead. There is still hope for you. There is still hope for, for Israel. There's still hope for the Jewish people. And so he says, whom God raised from the dead, of which we're witnesses, and his name through faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Folks, Peter wouldn't even take credit for the faith that was exercised in the healing. He did what he did in the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. You know, see how people today are going around saying, oh man, you know, you know, we just need to have, we have faith, we have faith, we trust faith. Uh, you know, they have faith in faith. I have faith in Jesus. I don't know, there's a big difference to me. We need to have faith in Jesus because Jesus is the power. I don't have faith in faith, I have faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, the faith that I have to do, you know, to have faith in Christ, that faith God gave to me because I didn't have it. And He gave it to you because you didn't have it. He gave it to us. Look at verses 17 and 18. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. What you did, you did in ignorance, as, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of the whole of His prophets, that the Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. God has fulfilled it. And once again, Peter offers hope. Time and time again, we'd see Peter offering hope to his own people. And, 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 uh, and he offers hope even after the need to know that sin was committed to put Jesus on the cross. As in chapter 2, Peter recognized a call for the execution of Jesus in ignorance of God's eternal plan, which of course doesn't make them innocent, but it defines the nature of their guilt. And folks, today, we, we, cannot, we cannot claim ignorance of the law if we break the law ignorantly because we didn't know the law. That doesn't make us innocent. We're still guilty. If we break a traffic violation or we, or we, or we commit a traffic violation out of ignorance because we didn't know this, this law, that doesn't keep us from getting the ticket because we're not to be ignorant of the law. And these people who were supposed to be God's people, who had God's law and God's word, they should have known, but they were ignorant. But there is an important distinction that we have to make here as well. Because if sin is committed in ignorance, it's still sin. But it is different from sin committed in full knowledge. If I commit a sin in ignorance, you know, I, I know that I, I, I have to be awakened to the fact that I did something that I, I didn't realize I shouldn't have done. But that's different than somebody who just outright says, I am going to hurt somebody. You know, if I, offend, if I offend any of you, ignorantly, I didn't realize it, and I don't know it, you know, weeks uh, for, for weeks on end, 
I didn't know that I had hurt you or, or said something to you. Later on I find that out. I feel terrible about it. But a person who, who wants to hurt somebody, who wants to inflict some kind of, 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 of abuse or damage in some way, that's a, difference, that's a whole different story altogether, isn't it? So you see why it's important for him to say to them, you did this in ignorance, as did your rulers, but those things that God foretold by the prophets, he has already fulfilled. And in spite of all the wicked acts done to Jesus, it didn't change or hinder the plan of God one bit. It didn't hinder or change the plan of God one bit. The Lord took the worst evil committed and He used it for good. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know about the God that we love and serve? That He can take the worst evil and He could use it for good. God could take the worst things that happened to those same Jews, those six million Jews in the Holocaust. And we would say that is just the most tragic thing that has ever happened. Revealing the, the very wicked and, heart, wicked and evil hearts of men. And turn it around and just a few, couple of years later, a few years later, out of the ashes of that Holocaust, the nation of Israel rises. You see, in the life of Joseph and his brothers, when Joseph was mistreated and, and, and left for dead by his own brothers, what, God, what, 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 what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. Genesis 50 verse 20, Joseph himself to his brothers says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. I am here to save our people. God worked it out, you see. We would wonder, how does God do these things? Well, He's God. He can do them. He knows how. He knows how to take the worst of, of men and make the, the best of things. Paul mentions that in Romans 8.28 when he says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God, what He takes you know, out of that wickedness, the evil of, of this life, and he, and he turns it into good. That's our God that loves us. He takes our most tragic moments and He turns them to good. Because He's a good God. God is great and God is good. I know some of you are thinking, let us thank Him for our food. And that's okay. Soon enough you can have brunch. Now Peter calls for repentance. In verse 19, notice. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all of His prophets, holy prophets, since the world began. As in his very first sermon, Peter calls upon the gathered crowd to repent and to turn around in their thinking and in their deeds. In other words, repent from the direction you're going away from God. Repent and turn toward God and go toward Him. And he once again offers them hope. 
You've done wrong, but you can repent. You can turn around and you can get right with the Lord right now. And we turn and, 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 and then what happens when we do that? You see, for us, when we turn from the ways that we were going before we knew Jesus and we received the gospel and we repented, what, what happened then? Well, then God converted us. He, he changed us, made us new creatures in Christ. And the work of conversion is God's work. Notice again, repent therefore and be converted. You know, we make ourselves available for God to convert us. But really, the work of conversion is God's. This is the work of the Lord that He does in us. We don't convert anybody. And, if, and really, we don't convert ourselves. But what Peter is saying is, he says, repent, turn. And in the process here, God is changing you. It is being a new creature in Christ. Notice 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Uh, and, and we have to remember, this is where we are now as believers. We're new creatures in Christ. And, and it doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've been a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, 10, 20, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, you're still new. Man, the warranty's not going out. You don't have to go in for replacement parts. You're new in Jesus Christ. The old has passed away. And then it's interesting that Peter would then use the next term, blotted out. When he says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. To refer to our record of sin. It was obvious that he would do this because the ink of those days did not contain any acid content. And so it didn't bite as, as, as inks do today. You know, they, they bite the paper and, 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 you know, it doesn't matter. You know, you can try to scratch it out. And some, most inks, you can't. It's, it's stuck on there. But in those days, they didn't have this acid content in their ink. So it didn't bite or adhere to the paper. So it could almost be wiped off completely with a damp cloth. It's one reason why they protected their documents and, and all of their scrolls the way that they did and try to preserve them because it would have been just easy just to take a damp cloth and, a damp cloth and just wipe that off. And this is what happens, you see. It's what happens when the Lord wipes away our record of sin. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. What a, what a promise. What a promise. I will blot out your transgressions. And this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. He blotted out our transgressions. He took them and nailed them on the cross. He's taken our sins. He's cast them as far as east is from the west. The east and west never meet. He's cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Never for us to see them again. The devil can come before the Lord accusing you of your sins. And he says, look, look at this, look at this sinner, you know, who's down there right now. And the Lord says, there's nothing here. It's been blotted out. 
Many of you remember the Invisible Link thing, you know, from the DC comic books, you know, you can order. (laughs) This is better. He's taken our sins. And so Peter said, in effect, do these things, and times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing. He is certainly referring to the time when Messiah returns and rules the earth with righteousness. But there is, a real, there is a realistic sense that this is what happens when we surrender our sins to the Lord and He forgives us. Times of refreshing come. You know when the, the, the lifting of that burden of guilt of our sins is, is taken off of us? Don't you just feel refreshed? Don't you just feel that, 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 that lightness of, of spirit, the fact that you can lift up your head now, you can give praise and thanksgiving to God and say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for loving me to take those sins off of me. There's a time of refreshing that comes to the heart when we realize that the Lord has cleansed us, cleansed us and made us clean and and pure. Times of refreshing. I was mentioning last night, you know, the term refreshing, you know, years ago, you know, used to be used in commercials for soft drinks, you know. And you could just hear, you know, the pouring of the drink into ice and it just sounded so refreshing and so cool especially in days when our air conditioners didn't work in the summer and the glass would be sweating and you just want to jump inside drink it all or you'd buy those sodas in the bottle you know that were in the ice and you pull it out Just, just refreshing What a refreshment it is to let Jesus take us and our sins and take them away from us. And Psalm 32, David knew this, didn't he? Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. David, you know, after he had committed his great sins, in Psalm 51, his great psalm of repentance, but now he says, in the effect of that, why 32 is before 51? Well, I don't know, but here it is. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, here's, here's the opposite of refreshment. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, the hand of conviction. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge, but here's, here's the times of refreshment. This is when it begins. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Forgave and, and lifted it up. And, God, and, and John tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness immediately confess your sins he's faithful to forgive times of refreshing comes Uh, where the nation to have repented if the nation of Israel had repented the Lord would have sent Jesus to return in glory according to the statement given in verses 20 and 21 that he might send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. 
Peter was implying that Jesus would remain in heaven until the times of restoration of all things. And since the repentance of Israel is one of those things, then in a sense the return of Jesus will not happen until Israel does repent as a nation. Now let me just tell you this. God already knows that they're going to repent as a nation. He already knows it. And all we have to do is read Zechariah chapter 14 to know this. All we have to do is actually read all of Zechariah or read the prophets and begin to realize that every time God talks about restoring His people, He's going to do that. So God already knows that the nation is going to repent. Peter understood this somewhat in Romans chapter 11 when when he says in verses 25 to 27, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away in godliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with him when I take away their sins. So there is a deliverance that is coming for Israel. And, and so uh, uh, Peter is, is understanding of this when he, when he mentions the times of restoration. But also remember this, that he is dealing with individual hearts. And he's saying Jesus has already come and he has already revealed himself as Messiah and he can be received right now. And if you receive him now, times of refreshing will come and we will wait together for the restoration of all things. But we know that he has come. Lastly, Peter warns them of the danger of rejecting the Messiah Jesus Verses 22 to the end, he says, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall utterly destro- be, uh, shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets, from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made of our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Going from the general as a nation to the specific, the individual. He will in turn... Turn away every one of you from your iniquities. Every one of you. It is important to note that the Jews of Peter's day were aware of Moses' prophecy. But, they were, but there were those who thought also that the prophet that is mentioned there would be someone different than Messiah. That there was a prophet and there would be a Messiah. But Peter makes it clear that the prophet and the Messiah were one and the same. Consider, if you will, the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God uh, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Him you shall hear. Who would you hear? You would hear Messiah. But he comes as a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. God is now speaking here and he says, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. When we look at Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, what did we see? We saw the Messiah, 
the things that he did, we heard God through the prophet. But it was one and the same. The prophet and the Messiah was Jesus. Remember that this chapter is still very Jewish. And yet there is a hidden theme in the last two verses concerning the extension of the gospel to all of the world. First of all, in his mention of Abraham and the very fact that all the families of the world shall be blessed. All the families, not just Israel, all the families of the world shall be blessed through Abraham. And then in the very first words of verse 26, he says, to you first. Which implies what? You first, everybody else next. You, you see the picture? God isn't just limiting His salvation to Israel. He is giving it to Israel first and then to all the nations. Just as Paul stated in the first chapter of Romans, Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to, for the Jew first, and also for the, the Greek or the Gentile. To the Jew first. He came unto his own first, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God. To as many, Jew and Gentile, as receive his name. Lastly, God desires to bless us. I said lastly already, didn't I? Okay, this is my next lastly. Hopefully my last lastly. God's desire to bless us. And to do good for us also includes his desire to turn us away from our sins. And folks, I just want to end with this. It is in the very name of Jesus that he came to do that. When we hear what is said to Mary or about Mary in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 to Joseph, it says, And she will bring forth a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. That is why he came. It's in his name to turn us from that to himself, the sinless one. It is Jesus that we want to hold on to, like the lame man held on to Peter and John. We want to hold on to Jesus. Let's pray.